Hey everyone, you are listening to Vegan Theology. This is episode 15. This is Kevin. And this is Sarah. Hello everybody. Thanks for being here. Hey. How are you, Kevin? Good, you? Awesome. Yeah. Excited to be doing this. Totally. It's uh, one of the highlights of my week. It is. To sit here yeah. with you. and. Yeah, we definitely enjoy this. Yeah. Definitely shaping our theology and ethics in general. I feel like this podcast is really... Mm-hmm. Tapping into a lot, so yeah, I'm really thankful, very thankful that this is happening, that we're doing this, that God is blessing it, and um, yeah, I think we're both learning and growing quite a bit. Yeah. So we are still working through Andrew Lindsay's book, Animal Theology, which we're enjoying very much, and we have reached the last chapter of part one. Um, it's a two-part book. Chapter five is the last chapter of part one. And I would just say, just based on, you know, glancing over part two, it, it would seem to me that part one is definitely Andrew Lindsay laying foundational thought, mm. the philosophical foundations, the theological foundations for his animal theology. And then part two is going to be a, a lot more of the practice of the actual tangible, applicable, putting it into practice, there you go. like the specific practical side mm. of things, which okay. I, I think will also be very exciting. Yeah. So just to kind of review where we've been, chapter one was reverence, responsibility, and rights for animals. And chapter two was the moral priority of the week, which I have really been enjoying thinking through that and, yeah. and just noticing how it shows up in my theology. Chapter three, humans as the servant species, which I think is very groundbreaking. It is. He's saying, yes, humans are unique and they're unique in their <laughs> capacity to be able to be the servant yeah, species. Love this guy. Chapter four was liberation theology for animals, uh, which was also really great. And then chapter five, and the title of this chapter which I think we're going to be discussing quite a bit, yeah. is animal rights and parasitical nature. Mm. That phrase, parasitical nature, was a little surprising to me yeah. and a little confusing to me. And Yeah, we had some discussion about it. Yes. It's, uh, it's definitely, he, uses, he tells a metaphor in this, in this chapter mm -hmm. regarding that word Yeah. to try and bring it home. Which and is nice. Yeah. It is very, it's an interesting word yeah. to and use, I, which we'll get into. <laughs> I fully expected, I just fully assumed, okay, he's using a phrase like parasitical nature. I don't think that's a phrase many of us have heard, you know, which then that, that, that led me to think, yeah, I wonder who his intended audience is. Like, mm. is it the lay theologian like us or... Is it more a professional theologian that might actually know this phrase? I don't know. Mm. But I thought, oh, for sure, for sure he's going to start this chapter by defining his terms. He's going to explain and define why that choice of word, parasitical, and how, you know, to get us all on the same page. Right. But much to my surprise, he actually does not define his terms. Yeah, I think he does, though, through the metaphor. But you're right. He doesn't clearly say, this is what I mean by parasitical nature. Yeah. But 
once you read the chapter and read the metaphor. Um, yeah, it's in it there. It becomes clear. <laughs> it's in there, and I had to read it more than once. Right. But, yeah, there's not, like, an opening statement, like, parasitical nature. Here's my definition of right. that. So, which I appreciate. Like, he trusts us. He trusts the reader enough that we will get his intent right. <laughs> without spelling it out quite as clearly as I was hoping he would, I guess. So parasitical nature. You know, I thought maybe I had the vaguest idea of what he meant, but it was when starting to read it, like let's just look at the first sentence. He says, the preceding chapters have assumed that God's will is a redeemed creation, freed from parasitism. So God's will is a redeemed creation. We can get on board with that. That's what we've been talking about. That, you know, when we talk about God's original intent that we see in the Garden of Eden, that beautiful, peaceful, thriving, cared-for creation Mm -hmm. was his original intent. And then we've talked about God's ultimate intent for creation, right? And then... We're kind of in the middle of those two bookends. Mm -hmm. But God's will is to redeem creation and free it from parasitism. So at that point, I start thinking, okay, I think that he's using this term, parasitism, similarly to the way we've been using the word predation, Mm. that this world is marred by killing and death and that's the only thing we know. Right. And he also talks about the concept of natural law a lot in this chapter. Similarly, I would say, because I think natural law is referring to we look at the way things are naturally in mm-hmm. this world and we think, oh, OK, that must be the way things are supposed to be. So these right. are all these are all coming together in this chapter for him to be able to say, yeah, the way things are, this parasitical nature mm. is not actually the way things are supposed to be, and they're not the way God wants them to be. Right. No, it's very interesting. I feel like a lot comes out when you start to think about what these words mean. And like you said, we use we use the word predation quite a bit, and we keep saying, in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, there was no predation. In the end, in the eternal state, there will be no predation. And so, yeah, if you really think about that, you know, if you, a lot of times we immediately go to wild animals and we think of predators. Yeah. But we as humans are predators on dairy cows, on beef cows, on bison, on all the things we eat. And then, of course, we live in Montana and there's just probably like a lot of places in the United States, a lot of hunting goes on here. And, you know, some even say that this area, NS Montana, which is maybe an hour away from us is like the fly fishing capital of the world. So there's a lot of seasonal hunting and fishing right in our area. A lot of big rivers, mm-hmm. a lot of epic legendary rivers here. So, you know, we're predators. We're in fact, we were talking about this. We're, we're probably the, in some ways, the apex predators here and in this, in this world. Right. When you think of factory farming. Yes. Yes. It's interesting to look at the word, predator or predation and contrast, compare it and contrast it to the word parasite or 
parasitism, hmm. parasitical. There's some overlap there right. in terms of basically the phenomenon, uh, which is taking advantage or overpowering or uh, using, using, exploiting, commodifying. All of these words come up. So there's some overlap. Like if there was a Venn diagram of the word predation and parasitism, there's some overlap. But there is... There's some contrast there. There is. But I just want to emphasize, too, like think about us. A parasite, it basically is relying on a host for sustenance, for nourishment. And it doesn't necessarily want to kill the host, Mm -hmm. but it's using the host. Mm -hmm. And it's what we, you know, we a lot of times use as derogatory terms. Something's a parasite. exactly. And yet to throw that term on us. Yeah. That we are parasites. For factory farms, we're we're relying on cow's milk. I'm obviously we're vegan, but I'm just saying our our culture, our our country, our world. When we're relying on factory farm animals and their byproducts, we're kind of being parasites, right? On these animals, right? The idea that a parasite is leeching off of another entity, another person, another sentient being doesn't want to kill them necessarily, like you said, but is definitely diminishing their life, diminishing Absolutely. the life of the host, diminishing in terms of they're not as healthy as they would be otherwise. They're not they're as not thriving. They're not thriving. They're not flourishing. They're not as fully alive as they would be if they were not taken over by a parasite. Right. And I think it goes even beyond the literal meaning to metaphorically if you think about parasitical nature that phrase is not limited to like the literal what we literally put in our food for our bodies but just the way we view nature the way we view other people right. the way corporations work the way capitalism works right. the way this natural law idea that when you look at our world that is cursed by sin mm-hmm. it's a parasitical nature it's it's very interesting i mean you, slavery Honestly, yes. slavery is mm-hmm. is a form of parasiticism, if that's the right word. Yeah, or I know, I know. Or yeah, colonization, coming right. in and saying, oh, th- this this land is ours now. You're our slaves now. Right. Uh, your resources are ours now. We can put you under martial law and ruin the quality of your life, all for our enrichment. Right. Yeah. Very so interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there is a more derogatory element to the word parasite than there is to the word predator. Pre- I think so. I mean, if you look at our mythologies, right. Right, our cultural mythologies, we tend to romanticize the conqueror, the victor, the warrior. And I think predator could almost belong in that category of terms. Right. Like if you think about a, in the wild animal kingdom, the African lion, right? Or whatever is is considered like something to kind of admire right. and or we, we we throw out the term apex predators around here if you talk to hunters you know yeah the alpha male yeah the right exactly you're right we romanticize mm-hmm. the whole idea of predation or predators but we don't we don't romanticize parasites right yes and yes so parasite is definitely more derogatory yeah but how is it true that our species on the traditional animal eating diet or all of nature in general, is parasitic. And Lindsay 
does little to explain, but again, he does bring out his point. But what came to mind right away is that, yeah, we keep these species alive enough to continue to live off of them, mm. but not alive enough to be free from fear or even healthy in a, th- in a thriving sense or happy. Uh, their lives are diminished and deformed. They're not free. And so if you think about God's command to humans to continue to bring order his good order to creation we've completely corrupted that right we've taken that authority and we've done just the opposite we have brought disorder to all of these other species and to creation right yeah i mean the way i see it there's no death and destruction happening in the eternal state there wasn't any in eden and there wouldn't be any in the eternal state, the new earth. He has an awesome quote in this book where he's just talking about the eternal state. Yeah, I can read that. Yeah. It's actually in the first paragraph. Let me just read the paragraph in its entirety. The preceding chapters have assumed that God's will is a redeemed creation freed from parasitism. This is an unfashionable view in modern theology, which has accepted almost as a matter of course, that God's redemption will be limited to the human sphere in the next world, or at least that God's will is ecological parasitism in this. Like this is God's will. The way things are is God's will. Here I defend the world-transforming designs of the deity I see revealed in Jesus Christ and also suggest that the urge to behave, quote, unnaturally in respect of our carnivorous habits can be a sign of grace. Living without killing sentience wherever possible is a theological duty laid upon Christians who wish to approximate the peaceable kingdom. I love that quote. I mean, that that's it right there. I mean, that's the essence of, I feel like, why we're doing this. We've talked about this many times, that Christians, we're not using our Christian imaginations. We're not looking at the descriptions in in the text, Revelation 21 and Isaiah, and all the different allusions to the future eternal state. We're not living that out. I mean, that's why we're here. Yeah, I mean, he always comes back. What I love, and I, I just adore this, he always comes back to Jesus Christ. If we look at what is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and what that shows us, what that reveals about God, he says, the world-transforming designs I see revealed in Jesus Christ that we actually should consider acting, quote, unnaturally. So again, going up against the natural Mm. law. That actually, the way things are naturally is not the way they're supposed to be, not God's designs, not life-giving, not fulfilling our commission as humans. And so to behave unnaturally in respect to our carnivorous habits could be a sign of grace, and living without killing wherever possible is the theological duty laid upon us Mm. to approximate the peaceable kingdom. Mm. So yeah, in this first paragraph, We have, on the one hand, ecological parasitism, natural law, and the ecological ethic. And that's all contrasted to 
the redeemed creation, the world-transforming designs of the deity, and the peaceable kingdom, and a creation-based liberation theology. So he's really showing us there's two ways. The one way that seems like most Christians follow, and our theology has followed, and he's contrasting that to this new vision that is not the parasitical nature. It is not natural law. And here is where he does come up with his metaphor from fiction. And he draws from Anne Rice's novel, The Interview with the Vampire. And so he's going to use the phenomenon of um, the vampire, the character of the vampire, to illustrate our situation. Of course, this vampire, her main character's vampire is Lewis, and he is he is morally conflicted. He has a conscience about this life that he's been thrust into as a vampire. He has qualms about the the morality of drinking other people's blood, basically killing, even though he's told, you know, by his mentors it's just the natural law. It's, it's your nature. To, it, why would you go against your very nature? But before we explore that metaphor, I, as we were talking about this a week ago or whatever, I remember you had a similar, perhaps, metaphor oh, yeah. that you were reminded of or it came to your mind from, from literature as well. Yeah, if, if anyone's ever read Cormac McCarthy's book, I think I won a Pulitzer Prize, The Road. It was also made into a movie. And that that's a very interesting story where some, you know, something has happened. I don't know if it's a nuclear situation, but there's no vegetation to eat, at least apparently. And so people are finding food by finding old food in cans, that kind of thing. But the one thing that's happening is this very evil thing that's happening. And I don't want to give any spoilers, but some humans are being held captive and their body parts are being sawed off, let's say. People are consuming them um, slowly. So they're being kept alive, maimed to feed other, other humans, the more powerful. And so, again, a very parasitical situation. And I don't know, it just really rung true for me thinking about the road mm. when, when, I, when I read this chapter as well. Yeah, it's a very graphic, it really does, it's a powerful illustration. It's a powerful yeah, picture. cannibalistic. It's, it's horror. I mean, it is. It's horror and it's evil. I mean, it's just so apparent. So Anne Rice's interview with a vampire, this fascinating main character, Lewis, the conscience-plagued vampire, uh, is our illustration, or Lindsay's illustration. He says, if we return... Well, illustration for the vegan, for the Christian vegan. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For someone who is at least wrestling with this parasitical nature of eating animals. With the way things are. With Yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, he says, We find that some features of Lewis's predicament show uncanny similarity to our own. In the first place, almost all Lewis's fellow vampires do not see that there is a moral problem at all. Yes, we can relate to that as people who question eating animals, that there's no moral problem here at all. Mm. 
when he raises with his propagator, Lestat, whether there might be something less than desirable about sucking blood, Lewis is chided for his emotional immaturity. He is simply chasing the phantoms of his former self. You are in love with your mortal nature, argues Lestat. In other words, Lewis has not yet grown up. He did not yet see that the issue of killing was no moral issue at all. I think that's interesting, you know, because children, I think we've all had the experience either when we were children or when we've been around other small children, that when they see an animal suffering or they see an animal killed, universally their response is shock and horror Mm. and trauma. And we kind of smile and say, oh, you know, yes, I remember when I felt that way, but you just haven't grown up yet. You just don't understand yet how the world works, right. what is natural. And, you know, I, I like to say, I think every child is born vegan. And, but you can see by already by the age of four or five, they are already being enculturated oh, no, God God made animals for us. And, you know, they're already being brought up in this culture of, yeah, what, when I get old enough, I'm going to go hunting with my dad. And I think that Lindsay's right, that there is a lot of similarity. There are a lot of parallels here, that Lewis is being chided for being childish. Um, Lestat says, vampires are killers, predators whose all-seeing eyes were meant to give them detachment, the ability to to see human life in its entirety, not with any mawkish sorrow, but with a thrilling satisfaction in being the end of that life and having a hand in the divine plan. Okay, this reminds me of, there's a, a very popular movement out there of being a frontier woman or a frontier man and owning your own land and growing your own food and slaughtering your own animals. And there's a lot of spiritual language that's always put around that. You know, we spiritualize it. Like, oh, I, I, I lay my hand on this animal as it breathes its last breath. You know, there's articles and books written mm. like crazy right now. It's like a cottage industry right now. It's like homesteading or Thank something you. along that? Okay. Yeah. There's but a show about it too, right? Isn't there some streaming... TV show about it. Oh, I I'm think sure. There is, yeah. I'm sure. But even hunters and and fishermen, like there's a spiritual aura around it that I have been given the authority by God to end this animal's life, mm. and I I do it with the most honor that I can. And you know the whole honor the whole animal you know idea. Like I feel like it's a misuse. It's almost spiritual abuse to put spiritual language on top of mm. you know taking an animal's life and it's as we find out it's completely unnecessary to do so he goes on and it is this idea that brings us to the most significant similarity between almost all vampires and almost all humans eating animals by humans is thought to be as natural as sucking blood is for vampires The argument is quite explicit. Do what it is your nature to do. Do what it is your nature to do. This claim seems to sum up the dilemma of both vampires like Lewis and mortal vegetarians like myself who would rather live without killing. 
Are we not simply opposing the nature of things as given, or indeed our own natures? Are not non-blood-sucking vampires and non-meat-eating humans similarly anomalous in the history of our respective species? Is it not true that both are seemingly incapable of facing the world as it is without emotion or moral squint? The next subheading is Rethinking Natural Law. He says, in the same way that Lewis was led to God in order to explain and understand the X factor that makes vampires blood-sucking or humans carnivorous, so too have many previously wrestled with the morality of killing in the sight of God. So he goes into how many people who uh, write about natural law Again, they, they just look at the way things are. We saw this, I believe, with Aristotle. And then Aquinas just adopted Aristotle. That they look at the way things are in the world and they say, oh, that must be the way that things are supposed to be. And then they go to the next step of that must be the way God intended it to be. And that's basically natural law. The way things are naturally is the way they were meant to be. But Lindsay says, Genesis depicts a state of perfect Sabbath harmony with creation, where humans and animals are both prescribed a vegetarian diet. This fundamental insight that parasitical existence is incompatible with the original will of God has to be grasped if we are to understand the subsequent attempts in Genesis, both to limit and accommodate killing. So, yes, I think we resonate with that very well. Right. We've, we've made this point that why is it when we are taught the Genesis account or we hear a sermon about Eden or whatever, we never focus as a church on the fact that animals and humans lived peacefully together and God commanded us to be on a vegetarian diet and that is his intention. And we, we, we mean by vegetarian vegan, correct? Yes, yes. Why is it that that's always glossed over? And I mean, I was taught in my church that God gave us animals to eat, that that's why he created animals. Mm. But see, I feel like this goes back to some of the foundations we're trying to create in this podcast, that the eternal state, that we're not going to spend eternity in heaven. Many people have that belief that somehow they're going to be, they're going to escape this horrible world, and then God's just going to clean it up, and they're going to spend eternity in heaven. But actually, we think that the biblical text speaks clear to the fact that we are going to spend eternity on the new earth. And my point being is I think it gets bypassed. I think people... They, they see Eden, then they realize that original sin happened, and they feel like it's just a mess until the end, until God takes us away. That's the narrative. Yep. And so it is what it is. God gave us animals to eat. No way at covenant, and even Jesus ate fish and blah, blah, blah. And mm -hmm. they're not connecting the dots. They're not looking at, I'm going to say they're not reading their Bibles correctly. They're not interpreting them correctly. Well, th I would definitely say we've allowed natural law to infiltrate our theology, that the way things are is the way God wanted them or wants them. 
he then goes on to say, and yet the insight that parasitical existence is incompatible with the designs of the creator still does not answer the problem of how vampires or carnivores must live today. If God can tolerate such a system, are we not in the end to resign ourselves to it? So he gets to, okay, like even if we do say, all right, the parasitical nature is not God's intent, it does seem like there's still the question, okay, well, how are we supposed to live in this fallen world? We find ourselves in this fallen world. We don't find ourselves in the Garden of Eden. And it seems like God is able to tolerate this parasitical nature to some degree. And so how how are we supposed to be living, right? So he's... Go ahead. This always goes back to the fact that we're image bearers, right? And we're not being very good image bearers. I have criticisms of the church in general, and I don't really need to go into them here, but I feel like at the end of the day that the church is not doing its job. And let's let's hear what Lindsay has to say. He says, I argue rather that the state of nature can in no way be an unambiguous referent to what God wills or plans for creation. So basically, he's really coming up against this acceptance of natural law. He's saying you cannot look at nature in the fallen state and, and think that it's, an unambiguous referent to God's will. Right. So stop doing that. 100%. So much natural law theory rests upon an unqualified naturalism. What we have witnessed, almost by sleight of hand, is a developing naturalism within moral theology, which fundamentally limits the redeeming capacities of God to what humans perceive to be the way things are in nature itself. The result has been an almost total failure to grasp the possibility of redemption outside the human sphere. One example must suffice. He gives this example from John Armstrong. John Armstrong, in a sensitive and perceptive discussion of Hebrew attitudes to animals, nevertheless castigates Isaiah's vision of the lion laying down with the lamb as an attempt to quote, to get rid of the beasts of prey or change their nature beyond recognition. He appears not to see the point of Isaiah's vision, which is not that animality will be destroyed by divine love, but rather that animal nature is in bondage to violence and predation. The vision of Isaiah is directly relevant here. It invites us to the imaginative recognition that God's transforming love is not determined even by what we think we know of elementary biology. It's a failure of imagination. Once again, Hmm. we are so limited by what we know, what we experience, what we see in this fallen world. We can't even imagine that it's not the way it's supposed to be. And yeah, for people to say, oh, God's going to just get rid of animal nature. God's going to get rid of animals to the point where they're not even recognizable to us. No, actually, right now, they're enslaved. Right now, they're in bondage. Right now, they're, they're stuck in this cycle of predation. But God is going to liberate. I just think so often 
it reminds me of what you were saying. Like, it's almost like we're living in a zombie apocalypse. We were born into it, and that's right. all we've ever known. That's all we know. And same with the road. There's a child character in the road that has no memory of life before the apocalypse. Right. And the father is trying to describe colors and animals and trees and trying to describe... Pleasure. Yeah. Even pleasure. Just normal pleasure. Yeah. Having a neighborhood, having a culture, having a community. All of these things have been lost. And that's almost like an illustration of us. We accept what is as the way things are, the way things have to be, maybe even the way God wants them. Instead of being able to imagine the rich reality that we're missing out on. Right. I mean, I feel like we run into this all the time with all kinds of people. I remember we've talked to people uh, about veganism and they'll say, I was raised on a a dairy farm Mm -hmm. and that's who I am. And yet they're a Christian as well. Well, do you believe in new birth? Do you believe in progress? Redemption. Redemption, all these things. Do you believe in the new earth? I mean, do you believe in any of that? And I mean, I feel like what you just read just gave away the the essence of what we're supposed to be doing. Mm. The quote there, the very end of that quote you read where he talks about elementary biology. I mean, I know I grew up believing that the only way you can get the essential amino acids for life, for human life, was to eat red meat. Mm. And we know now that that's not true. Right. And now we also know that all protein is plant-based. It's, it's, it's biochemistry. You don't need animals to survive. You don't. And even the B12s that we're all worried about, they, they don't come from animals. Yeah. Right? Nothing that we need for nutrition and health comes from animals. We know that. If we know this, then that should be what helps us realize that we can live without killing animals, that we can start living into the eternal state now. Right. And I think he, he mentions in this chapter that at certain points in human history, maybe it wasn't possible to be vegan or maybe in certain parts of the world with certain cultures, even today, maybe it's not possible to be completely vegan. But for those of us for whom it is more than possible, right? at what point is it morally wrong to choose death unnecessarily? It's not necessary for you to be supporting an industry of death. And so if it's not necessary, then isn't that a moral issue? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it can go on. I won't repeat all our podcasts, but it comes down to being image bearers. It comes down to being what you said, servant leaders. And it comes down to pushing back against chaos. And if you're still promoting death and destruction of sentient beings, you're not really being a good image bearer. Right. And you know what the final chapter is. We know what the eternal state is. You can read about it in Isaiah. You can read about it in Revelation 21. Yeah. There's going to be a peaceable kingdom. And if that's true in the future, we are to live into that now. That's God's will now. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like, we, yes, we live in a world of parasitical nature. We live in a parasitical nature. And, you know, I just keep thinking, I heard some people discussing what's going on in, in Palestine and Israel. And the end of the discussion was, well, that's just the way of the world. Mm. That's just the way the world is. It's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. Right. This, re- this resignation. It's very fatalistic. That 
this just is the way it is. It's natural law. And I think that's exactly what the essence of this chapter is. Yes, we live in this parasitical nature, but however it's possible to fight against that and bring back order and peace and nonviolence and however we can eliminate suffering in any way, that is our job. 100%. Amen, sister. So not only are we brought up in this fallen world and all we know is predation and violence and parasitism, but what, what you were saying, Kevin, actually reminded me that then the government and corporations get on board and actually push parasitical nature mm. onto us. We educate our children from the youngest ages that if you want to grow up and have strong bones and strong muscles, you have to eat animals. You have to drink their milk. Like That's how you will be healthy. Mm. So it's almost like those in power, the corporations, the governments, and they're in bed with each other or whatever, they get more wealth and more power by pushing this parasitical nature on mm. us. So it just compounds like the systematic nature where humans actually are creating more disorder in the world. Right. Well, it's this confusion, too, that we, we talk about, the misinformation thing that we've it's become so prevalent in the last few years. But, you know, propaganda is such a powerful thing. And just what you're talking about reminds me of Noam Chomsky and his Manufacturing Consent mm-hmm. book. I mean, just how the government actually does participate in these propaganda campaigns. Capitalism is the, obviously the driving force and power. Yeah. So it's unfortunate. But this is why we, we need to push back against this. Yes. So Lindsay's alternative to natural law is what he calls transnatural moral imperative. He says, but if it is right that Lewis should strive even against all odds to realize this moral imperative, even more should the human species seek to live without killing animals to eat. This is the obvious direction of my argument. The vampire has a dilemma because it seems at least at present that he cannot choose to live without recourse to blood. But we humans do now have such a choice. Whether humans have always been so free is something which at worst I am doubtful about. At best, I have an open mind. He goes on to mention different vegetarians, Western vegetarians or vegans um, in history and how people doubted that they really were surviving Mm. on a plant-based diet. But he says now, of course... It is so mainstream, he says, in the United Kingdom at least, with something approximating 4 million vegetarians, demi-vegetarians, and vegans. For humans, there is now no dilemma compounded through ignorance. We can live free of meat. There are now numerous examples of people who do so and who are alive and well. When we know that we are free to do otherwise, eating meat constitutes what Stephen Clark calls empty gluttony. Mm, interesting. That's what it comes down to. If you know that there, in terms of human health, you can flourish and thrive and be healthy on a plant-based diet, to do anything else is empty gluttony. 
As always, Lindsay ends his chapter with what he anticipates will be readers' objections. And this chapter is no exception. The last part he titles, Objections to Vegetarianism. And he has four here, but I thought we should focus on the second one because I think it's a really important one. It's certainly one I've come up against and something that I am working through. And it's the objection, he titles it, Jesus and Parasitism. The second objection is that Jesus was, as far as we know, no crusading vegetarian. While there are no precise biblical accounts of him eating meat, the canonical gospels leave us in no doubt that he ate fish. And if this is true, on what grounds can we claim him as the revelation of an alternative, non-parasitical existence, Mm. right? So, yeah, I would love if it was explicitly stated in the Gospels that Jesus championed a vegan lifestyle in Palestine. Mm. And you do hear that a lot of the early church, including maybe even some of Jesus' family, were vegan or at least moving in that direction on some level. Mm. But, yeah, so let's go on and see what Lindsay has for us here. He quotes from John Macquarie, who said, the Christian defines mature manhood in terms of Jesus Christ, and especially his self-giving love. But Christ himself is no static figure, nor are Christians called to imitate him as a static model. Christ is an eschatological figure always before us, and the doctrine of his coming again with glory implies that there are dimensions of Christhood not manifest in the historical Jesus and not yet fully grasped by the disciples. Thus, discipleship does not restrict human development to some fixed pattern, but summons into freedoms the full depth of of which is unknown, except that they will always be consonant with self-giving love. Mm. What are your thoughts on that, Kevin? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a hard passage, right? It's a hard idea, and I feel like one of the things we're going to do in this podcast is start approaching some of these harder questions that all Christians have or objections that people might have to Christian veganism specifically, you know, the problem of evil, which mm-hmm. is a very challenging topic. And anyway, but on in regard to this, right, Christ said we're going to do greater things than him. Right. Right. And, and, and I think one of Lindsay's arguments is that Christ was limited in his incarnational body to the human limitations that make up being a human. Like if God is omnipresent, well, Christ in his incarnational body, human body was not omnipresent. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just one limitation that Christ had, even though he was God and man. And I agree that Christ came with a certain mission in mind, right? Yeah. To spread the, the kingdom of God. He had certain tasks and ideas in mind, and he didn't accomplish all of it. He kind of got the ball rolling, so to speak. Let's put it that exactly. way. Exactly. And it's, and it's up to us to take up the mantle as Christians and to be good image bearers and continue that mission. Right. And I think one of the things you said is that, that, you know, some people want scripture and verse for everything that Christians do. 
yet we keep saying God has given us a, a mind and God is is giving us the ability to use our Christian imaginations to push the kingdom forward. And in fact, you were alluding to one of your colleagues. We were talking off off mic here, and maybe you can just talk about that. Yeah. What, what yeah, the idea that you cannot find in Scripture explicit instructions for how to live faithfully in our current context. There's not a biblical view on how to use social media. I like how this person, Macquarie, says that Jesus cannot be like this static model. Right. And we cannot be called to just imitate him as a static model because, well, one, some of us are not men, but two, not all of us can go and live in, in first century Palestine right. and, and live as he did. Right. And you, and you can also argue, kind of, you, you alluded to this in the conversation we had, that that's a snapshot, mm-hmm. a historical snapshot in time. Yeah. Christ lived from this point to this point in Palestine in the first century. Yeah. So the idea being, you mentioned my colleague, he's a jazz musician and he likes to use jazz creating jazz music as an illustration for the Christian walk, the Christian life, living faithfully, because so often we are called on to faithfully improvise. Mm. Improvisation is a big thing in jazz music. Yeah, and it doesn't mean play anything you want. You have to know the spirit of the song, the key of the song, what you're trying to communicate as a group with that song. So you're faithfully improvising in the spirit of that song. But still, it's not like someone hands you the exact notes and the exact rhythms to play. You get to figure out your voice faithfully and improvise. Mm. And so this idea being that, okay, I get that. Logically, I I can resonate with that. That has logical resonance that the person, the historical person, Jesus Christ, does not give us specific, explicit directions on every single situation that we face today. Mm -hmm. But I like how he says, the only thing that we always will know is as we faithfully improvise, Macquarie says, except that whatever we do will always be consonant with self-giving love. Mm. Consonant with self-giving love. So if that is what we take from Jesus then it lines up perfectly with what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Lindsay says, God incarnates himself or herself into the limits and constraints of the world as we know it. It is true that one of the purposes of the incarnation was to manifest something of the transnatural possibilities of existence. But no one human life can demonstrate, let alone exhaust, all the possibilities of self-giving love To those who argue that Jesus was deficient or limited either in his lack of crusading power for feminism, for the abolition of slavery, or for veganism, not to mention home rule, which I didn't really know what that was. I guess that's basically fighting against the occupying government. Mm. So those who say, why didn't Jesus stand up for women more or stand up against slavery? Wouldn't that be great? Like Mm. Because so many Christians in this country use the Bible right. to defend to justify slavery, it. wouldn't it have been awesome if Jesus had come out strongly against slavery or for veganism? We miss the central point that to confess Christ crucified 
is to confess a Christ inevitably and profoundly limited by the fact of incarnation. To be in one place at one time, this is what you were getting to earlier, means that one cannot be everywhere. So no, Jesus did not come and exhaustively bring the new kingdom and get rid of all systemic evil and all systemic injustices and all parasitism. But Jesus definitely left us a model of self-giving love to go forward. And I love what you said, that when Jesus said, you will do even greater things than me, I've always wondered what that meant. What do you mean? Hmm. We can't raise the dead or stop the storms. But yeah, maybe this is exactly what he was alluding to. Like, in my lifetime, I'm not going to dismantle misogyny. I'm not going to dismantle slavery. I'm not going to dismantle animal agriculture. But I'm calling you to do even greater things Mm. than I. I suggest, says Lindsay, that... What we have in Jesus is a model not of the accommodation of nature, but rather of the beginning of its transformation. Not that all things were transformed by Jesus, nor that all of his life in every aspect was so transforming, nor that every part has even yet been transformed, but that to follow Jesus is to affirm and seek to actualize the fundamental possibility of world transformation. Mm. Yeah, interestingly, I feel like it's very consistent with everything we've said in this podcast with the idea that God created the world, creation, and he established humans as the image bearers to continue the creative process. It wasn't complete. We were to take up the mantle and continue it. And similarly... What we've talked about in this podcast is the concept of the already not yet. Christ came, he established the new creation, but it's not complete. We're in this state of already not yet. Mm -hmm. And that's, I feel like that, that last bit you just read is pretty much the already not yet. Right. That the transformation has begun, but it's not yet complete. Yeah. And it also reminds me of what we've talked about in the past, that the idea that We as individuals are not the image of God. It's we as a species are the image of God. It's kind of like the body of Christ language. I am not the body of Christ, but we are the body of Christ. Mm. And so if we talk about the finiteness, the limitedness of being an incarnated being, one person cannot bring God's kingdom here. It takes all of us. And that's, in some ways, it's like, oh, that's a bummer because it's hard to work with humans, right? It's hard, it is, it's hard to collaborate. It's hard to, it is hard to collaborate. It's hard to be in relationship. It's hard to do, to do this work as a, as a community. But the interesting thing about it, and it's the questions, it's the perpetual question I always have is why does God want our participation? Mm-hmm. He could just do it. I know. But he doesn't. He continually wants us involved. Yeah. yeah. And what we need to do is get involved. Yeah. I know. It's always like, why does he trust us so much? I mean, it doesn't matter how much we screw it up. He continues to trust us to do the right thing. Right. If we would just do our jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's finish out this chapter. I I just love the way uh, Lindsay ends this chapter. To affirm the cosmic Christ is to embrace a new possibility of existence within our grasp now. It will be clear that this view gives a high place to humans in nature 
not because they are so worthy in themselves, but because they are as no other species, as far as we know at least, capable of focusing the forces of life and death of becoming vampires or vegetarians. It is for this reason that I also want to conclude that vegetarianism, far from being some kind of optional moral extra or some secondary moral consideration, is in fact an implicitly theological act of the greatest significance. By refusing to kill and eat meat, we are witnessing to a higher order of existence, implicit in the Logos, which is struggling to be born in us. By refusing to go the way of our, quote, natural nature or our psychological nature, by standing against the disorder of unredeemed nature, we become signs of the order of existence for which all creatures long. Mm. It's not just this add-on or this optional extra discipline that we can take or leave. He's saying that it has the, the utmost theological significance. It's like us witnessing that, no, we stand against death. We stand for life. We stand for non nonviolence. We stand up for the oppressed. We give priority to the weak. I love it. Mm, yeah, it's awesome. And he brings us back to our poor vampire, Lewis, to <laughs> end the chapter. I end as I began by asking you to consider the plight of our morally stricken vampire called Lewis. I'm sorry to say that I cannot report a happy ending. Despite his searches all over the world and his encounter with fellow vampires older and wiser than himself, and despite all his moral strength, he is unable to free himself from his own parasitical nature. There is one saving grace for Lewis, however. His story will not have been told in vain if it has helped us to recover a sense of the responsibility of our own moral freedom. Wow. Yeah, we are not vampires. We have options. We know the truth. And we have moral freedom to do the right thing. So mm. let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do Amen. it. Amen. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks for listening. Yes. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.